And we're recording. Cool. Jordan, good to see you. Good to see you. How have you been? Um, very good. I've been thinking about this question a lot, Neil, and I think That's we hot. should dive into it. Yeah, <laughs> don't, the tea, don't the tea you made is very hot. Well, what did you expect? It's, good, it's emblematic of the length of this conversation. <laughs> I don't know why you did that. Look, even if you're feeling figures on the outside, it's just like, it's taking that way. But all right, now you've let you listen. Hmm. And that's what we're here to that's do. That's how learn. cats and dogs learn. Yeah. <laughs> that's Ouch, that's hot. I'm learning the same life lessons as a puppy. It's so true though, isn't it? That's how you go through life. Mm-hmm. Just a lot of, oh fuck, that didn't work. Pain, bad. Yeah. Well, I mean... Look, that, it is just a slightly more evolved version of that learning in general. There's nothing, there's no way to not do that. Even when you read things about it, you're kind of like, okay, I know the map. And then you walk through the territory and make the same mistakes anyway. Wow, that's true, isn't it? It's just different variations of pain that you experience throughout your whole life and in more nuanced and complex ways. But it's the same concept, isn't it? Yeah. This, this job brought me pain, therefore it's bad. <laughs> well, that's how, that's... What I really feel is being a comedian for the first five, six years, definitely. And then the next 20 years after that is kind of just honing it. But it's really difficult, I reckon, at the very beginning. You get like a nice little boost, I think, if you start in high school because everyone goes, wow, you're really going to make it, aren't you? And like, it's just you've got a lot of friends around you. That was me. Yeah. And then (laughs) after that, you kind of go out into the real world and then you just realize, hey, I'm not really shit, am I? But anyway, um, okay, so uh, th- this is the, the main question. Yeah, I'm very intrigued, actually. Well, so am I, because I don't really know what I'm looking for here, but I just want to know what you think about the idea of communication. Okay. And I want to nut this out, because <sighs> this is so... It was basically because I started reading about this subject called semiotics, and it's a really interesting idea, which is that it was sort of... In the 19th century, they came up with this concept that just how like when you learn Latin mm-hmm. and then you can kind of pick up every other European language easier. Well, maybe Nordic ones and shit will just be too far removed, but sure. your, your romantic languages, yeah, easier. Mm-hmm. So they were thinking of something called semiotics, which was even more basic than that. It was kind of just the idea that signs are sort of arbitrary um, and that you kind of come up with language around those signs. And what sort of signs are we talking about here? Anything. So a dog. It doesn't have to be called a dog. It can be called anything. When does it become a dog? That's, the, that's what semiotics is trying to answer, right? So okay. it's kind of this idea of, yes, we're talking to people and you have a different language to me. Yeah. And this is kind of like another breakdown into a different category, which is linguistics, which is more focused on language. But it's... You have a bit of a different language to me and I have a bit of a different language to you. That's the main idea is that there's no such thing as English really. There's kind of like this generally accepted idea of it. But you can go to England and there'll be, you know, hoity-toity Queen's language. And then you can go to Harlem and then there'll be people speaking that, you know, it's still English. Yeah. But who's right? And the whole question is like when, when things become close enough... When language is close enough, then it becomes a language. But you use different words to me. Okay. Everyone does. So are you trying to answer the question, what is the most effective way of communication or just what is communication? How, how do you do a... it? 
And I think you're the right person to ask because okay. this is this is what I like about talking to you, Neil, is because we kind of have the same profession. And yeah. I think that our whole profession is basically about trying to get ideas into people's heads. Yeah, absolutely. How does that work? That's what I'm trying to ask here. So, like, when you're... I think probably the way to start off is, like... That's if, a really interesting idea, isn't it? Because the idea that you might be illustrating uh, to someone else they could receive it in a completely different way. Yep. So how do you know that you've communicated that idea effectively? And that's why I think that a lot of comedy is always based off of it. And I noticed that you use it a lot as well. And I think that that's just a, a starter with comedy. And the reason that I think a lot of international acts in comedy are going to be shitter than localised acts mm-hmm. is because they can't use local language. They can't use, you know, jats. You can't go to America and say jats. But as soon as you say jats in Australia, everyone goes, yep, I remember that. Mm-hmm. And so it's kind of this, this the flavor. The subconscious that's... kinship that ensues between the audience and the performer. Yep. Mm. They're definitely at an advantage then. You're at a huge advantage, I think, anyway, because I think that a lot of humor is sort of an inside joke. That was the magic of Hamish and Andy, that they were, trying, they were making this large inside joke for five years. Mm. Um, I think that's... That's a, a really important part of communication. Is kind of the only way that I can think about it now because I'm thinking I've been looking very basically into semiotics and linguistics, but it's just that it's kind of creating a language that is close enough to enough people that it hits. Mm. And so I don't know. I'm I'm just wondering. I think what I want to start with here is when you write comedy, how does it how does it work? Okay. Just start from the inception. Yep. You've got your blank canvas, then what? <laughs> <laughs> well, I generally come up with the ideas before the actual humor or punchlines. What does that so mean? So there's an idea I might want to uh, enunciate. So an idea, I'm, t- I'm just trying to think of a particular bit I have right at the moment, which is uh, I have this comedy bit about how love is a mental illness. So that thought came to me first, attributing love to that as something which is a mental illness. But where did that thought come from? It came from experience, experiencing it myself, observing it, mm-hmm. and finding the commonalities of that particular feeling with, um, with those who have a mental illness. So I made a link there. Hang on. And I wanted to express that to allow people to think about the concept of love in a different way. Wait, wait, slow and down, reframe slow down, slow their down. thinking. Okay, just, just let's sure, reverse sure, here sure, for sure, a second because sure, sure. this, this is what I'm actually getting very interested in at the moment is this this idea here. So okay, first of all, you thought about the idea of uh, you, you experience something with love. Yeah. So how did you connect that to mental illness? Because you kind of just jumped a point there, right? And this is the, this is the part sure. of communication that I think is important to tease out. Yeah, that intermediary there. Yeah. Well, I just saw that there were uh, that there were very common factors to e- to each phenomenon. But were you thinking that? Did it just randomly connect in your head, or were you thinking about mental illness and then you started thinking, "Oh, this is kind of close to love." It was the other way, love. Oh, this is kind of close to mental illness. Okay, so your brain automatically As I understand made the connection. Mental illness. Sorry, your brain automatically made the connection. Well, how do, we, how do we know whether it's automatic or not? I don't... This is what freaks me out about it. Right. Okay. Well, then you get into a discussion of free will. 
yeah, you do. It does kind of go into that realm, doesn't it? Are we in control of our thoughts or are they just random neurons firing? Well, is that what it felt like to you when you had that connection? When you Okay, so in your head you said love and then love and then the next thought was mental illness. Mm. So that was just random neurons firing off. It's hard, it's, it's hard it? to say, isn't yeah. it? Because I'm not entirely conscious of that the, the precise steps in that thought process. Mm. I like to think that it wasn't entirely random and I put some sort of thought into it, but I guess I, I can't, with any, without any, with, I can't say with any confidence that it wasn't random. Yeah. Because I, look, what it sounds like to me is, it's, it's, when you're a comedian, you train your brain to think in a certain way. Yeah. And you're, th- obviously trained it to make connections which is a a huge part of comedy is just saying this thing is like this thing yeah a lot of comedy is similes of course like rap and so i think that that's what you know comedy is kind of just like enlightening people yeah um and i think that that's what's happening in that moment and so okay after that so it it, yeah i i would suggest that yes in that moment, you, this is a hard way to say it, but I think that it's, there's, there's not free will there, but there is the mm. general free will that you've trained your brain to think that way and then your brain automatically thinks that way. Yeah, I can say that. Sure, sure. So there were arbitrary environmental factors that have led me to uh, have the particular neuron firing for mental illness at that point at the same time as consciously thinking about love and then I just automatically made that connection? I think that's what's happened. Right. But look, this is, I don't know, this this is going to be a lot of, what do you reckon? Is it maybe, I don't know. But this Well, we don't know because now we're even thinking, the thought process we're having while we are discussing this, we don't even know if this is actually us thinking or we're just trained to speak and communicate in this particular way isn't it scary (laughs) wow i never thought about it like that because it is really weird because look i like the the idea because this is why i think it'd be important to discuss this with you and it's kind of a bit different when i try and discuss it with my girlfriend who's trying to become an actor it's 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 a different mechanism i guess but it's i think it's important to discuss this with a comedian because it's again that thing of just trying to get images or an idea into people's head. But what, what it seems like with you, when you make comedy, uh, like love, mental illness, I mean, images always fire off in your head when you say these things, but they're kind of emotions. Mental illness is an emotion? Well, it's got a feel. I suppose everything has a feel to it. Yeah, when you're yes, is there when an we image talk going about them, your as, yes, there are. They're not concrete uh, ideas in the sense that they're feelings that we experience. But the thought of it is a concrete idea, isn't it? When we when we <laughs> sorry when we when we construct when we are <laughs> oh wow how can I articulate this? So when I'm when I'm pondering the emotion of love that. That pondering itself is a thought and it's not an emotion. Yeah. But experiencing love is an emotion. But are you... F- okay, let, let me ask you this. 
when you think of love, yeah, what's happening? Are you feeling an emotion or are you seeing an image? I'm not seeing an image. I'm not seeing a particular image. You know what? I'm I'm seeing a series of images where I've experienced the emotion. Is that what's happening? That, what, I'm just, I'm just trying to observe right now. So I'm just thinking back to all the times I've experienced love and I'm seeing those particular images flash through my mind. Right. Okay. And then when you think of uh, mental illness, yeah. are you seeing images or are you seeing an emotion? It's, or is it the same thing? It's, it's just the a same series sort of, of images. Thing. It's a series of images. Right. I'm, if I'm... This is the part that I'm able to observe in my mind. I don't know what's going on underneath that. Yeah. See, that's very different. So you're not seeing like a still image. You're seeing a bunch of moving images like it's a movie. Yes. Right. Yeah. Okay. And then an emotion hits in after you see the images in your head. So the images first, moving images, then emotion. Well, in this particular context, yes. Okay. Yes, because you've just told me what comes to your mind when you think of love. So I've I've then thought of it first and then the emotion has, has come. And the love part is experiences and the mental illness part, is it experience? No. Well, maybe related experience, but it's also uh, my, observe, my, my observations of mental illness. And so is it a realistic image or is it more cartoony? Realistic. It's realistic. It's realistic. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. How do you see particular things in your mind? If I, I said I, think about love, what do you see? I just see a love heart. Really? Mm-hmm. And then when I say... Mental, when you said that, I just saw a love heart. Yeah. But that this is what's even scarier, right? Is that your love heart is going to be completely different to mine. Yeah. And that's something I just... when you I've never thought of this before, but when you just introduced the topic, I mentioned it. But I've been thinking about that since we've been talking about this, which is that is the idea that I'm trying to express the same as the idea you're experiencing in, in your mind? Your no. understanding of the idea? No, it's not. It's, no one's you, is. Yeah. So if you were to say, yeah, I, I, so if I say, yeah, love, and you say, yeah, I know love, I'm not, how am I to know that it's the exact same love that I'm talking about? Exactly. And that's the whole uh, that's discipline a, of linguistics. That's a very scary concept. Well, it's... Well, it's confronting. It it's confronting. It's just that, yeah, your experience is not the same as everybody else's. And the closest thing you can get to is relating the experience. Yeah. So wow. it's, it's the same as the, is that, that concept of, is the red I see the same as the red you see? And I think the answer is no. I, 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 I think I remember reading this, that there was an experiment where they tried to link people's brains up using computers hmm. and just, it's like an early form of telepathy. And, even basic things. I think the example that they were using was ice cream. Mm-hmm. If I just think ice cream, it's going to take you a while to figure out that I am trying to convey to you ice cream. Because when you think of ice cream, it's going to be different. And so when you're just conveyed with another image, you just go, what is that? So, wait, so are you it's tra- like Pictionary. Are you just thinking of ice cream or are you trying to get me to think of ice cream as well? In, with, with the experiment? Yeah, yeah. So what- Yeah, I'm trying. I'm trying to... Basically, I'm trying to talk to you, but just with sure. putting images in your head without the format of communication. Well, without oh, the format wait. of talking. Oh, how are they doing that? It's just linking up because like, it's kind of the same thing as that they can sort of make blind people see now with just a bunch of electrodes stimulating their blind eyes. Oh. And so it's... Wow. Yeah, it's, it's pretty matrixy. 
it's high tech. Mm. But this is where it's kind of leading now because the whole point is just, you know, the art of communication is endlessly fascinating, particularly to us. I think it should be anyway. See, this is the whole point. I'm just wondering, how do you... I guess what, what I guess what I'm trying to ask with the whole question of communication is how do you get yeah. what you're trying to say into someone else's head? Because I think that that's an extremely effective skill in life. It's a, it's an important skill to have, and it's ex- particularly important in comedy. Yeah. And so, anyway, sorry. There's a myriad of factors that you can employ to do that. Huh? There's a myriad of things you can do to employ to you can employ to do that to get an idea that you're thinking of into someone's. As I understand it. Well, yeah, that's what I'm wondering with you because one of the, uh, the the pieces of stand-up that really sticks in my mind of yours is MySpace. Oh, sorry, not MySpace, um, MSN. MSN. Right. <laughs> and I think it's because it's so visual and it's so two-dimensional and everybody everybody saw the same thing. I think that's why it sticks so vividly in your head. Yeah, okay. So when you're talking about love or a love as a mental illness, it's a, it's a much more general picture. And sure. so it takes a while for your brain to figure out what you're saying. That's a, yes, yes. Whereas MSN, and particularly the, the images I would evoke in that particular joke were, were not abstract. Everyone knew those images. They're not abstract. Yeah. And so, I th- so the links are made a lot faster. Made a lot faster, and I think that that's yeah, it's it's uh, it's made a lot faster in that sense. But yeah, the the the, the more well, that's the power of marketing, isn't it? What do you mean? Then you get into well, the you take any of the very famous uh, symbols of big companies. Yeah, they evoke a certain emotion, and there's that relatedness between everyone who uses that particular company. Yeah. So but the McDonald's M, for example. But they're sort of... They're, trying they're pushing to an image into your head and then jamming a bunch of emotions behind it afterwards. So that M, if you never knew what McDonald's was, it'd just be sort of meaningless. You'd just be like, oh, okay, a big M. Yeah, true. But because you've had all these experiences related to it and there's all this advertising around it to make you feel a certain way when you see the big M. Sure. And so, yeah, that again, that's 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 well, actually, that is a good example of communication, I guess. But anyway, sorry. Um, <laughs> we could go back. I just wanted to break that part down. So then you said love is like a mental illness, and then what happened? Well, then, <laughs> I <laughs> that that's just part of that was just the first half of the thought. Yeah, love is like a mental illness. Therefore, I'm well, I'm devaluing the the concept of love as this eternal. Great, this eternally romantic great emotion essentially by, by by linking it with mental illness so then to to actually take that idea to the audience then the punchlines and the jokes come with it so because that idea is it's new and no one's well I, I, I'm sure people have thought of it before but I'd like to present it in a way that hasn't been thought of before that's then where the comedy comes in so love is like a mental illness that is a strange and abstract thought. Therefore, I can come up with some... And, and comedy and strangeness is, is inextric- inextricably linked. So therefore, I can come up with punchlines as a result. Mm-hmm. So after you said love is like a mental illness, do you then write that down and then you think of the jokes afterwards? Yes. So that's what happens. Yeah. So it's just one... Yeah. It's just one very 
simple sentence. That's what you start with. And then you write things after it. Yeah, it's a linking idea. And then I extrapolate that by, yes, writing things after that, getting at specific points in that particular idea. And what do you think is happening when you're saying that What's happening? How do you know it's a joke? That's what I'm wondering. That's the next point. How do you know when something's going to... You don't know that something's going to land, but you think, okay, well, this is in the general ball field that it might land. Sure, because the idea in itself is, like I said, it's abstract and, and it's a peculiar way of thinking of something. No, no, not that part. The, the jokes that the come jokes. with it. Oh. Do you just kind of have this... Because what happens with me when I write down a joke is yeah. I just go, nah, nah, nah. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, that might work. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I, I suppose it's a very similar process, yeah. I would write various uh, various related points to that sentence, and then I'll think about, is that funny? Is that going to hit? Is there some sort of, you know, is, is it misdirectional? Is there some sort of analogy which is humorous? And I'll use that same process of elimination. Mm. Sure. So I'll do the same thing, yeah. All right. This part's funny, this part's funny, this part's not funny. So that's the general process when... Because, see, I think that that's like a good starting point for this because when you're writing a joke, it's sort of... Well, it's it's one-dimensional in one way in terms of communication, but it's also a pure form of communication in that it's written down and there's an objective to it. And so mm. it kind of shows how the thought pattern works. Um, yeah. Yeah, that is interesting, isn't it? If you look at the sequence of jokes in a particular bit, when I say bit, obviously that refers to an idea within a stand-up show or a stand-up special. Then you can then you get an insight into that comedian's thought process. Yes. And so mm. what I'm wondering then is... Because what I've noticed is now that I do stand-up shows and basically just do it like it's the daily show. So I just have a slideshow with me. Yeah. And then I just have stupid photoshopped images of generally what I was thinking to accompany the joke. And you will see that the laugh hits instantly. Almost every time. It's kind of cheating. Um, but right, so you've added the visual stimulus. Because to... you have the visual stimulus. Yeah. stimulus. So it's just like, this is what I'm thinking about. And that's prompting what's a, to someone's What's an head. example that you have? Okay, so I think like a good example is it's just the first one that pops into my head because just basically the very beginning of the show is just I say that um, I wish that Rupert Murdoch traded in 70% of his newspapers for 70% ownership of those 4D haunted mind ghost rides. Now, if I just said that, I think that no one would know what I'm talking about. But because I just Photoshop his head onto one of those prospector ghosts that starts in the 4D ghost ride, just being like, you're in for a wild ride, bucko. And you, you put his head on that ghost. Yeah. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. So ideas that are very complicated to convey through words. Yeah. Uh, you can just supersede a lot of that stuff by just putting the image there. But what I think is what's an, an amazing trait of good comedians is that they're just, it, it, there's an economy of words to it. They're very good at just getting to the point. And oh, I that, notice yeah. that. I think that I have like a lot of superfluous words in my language. Gen oh, I mean, I look at the comedy I created just 
three, four, five years ago, and I think, well, I've 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 taken far too long to get to the point I was trying to make. Yeah, it was just ineffective. Yeah. So Louis C.K. is the master of that. There are videos on YouTube of how precise his word choice is, and it seems so off the cuff. It seems so conversational and casual, but no, he has meticulously planned out exactly what he's going to say. Mm. And that's a theatrical way of communicating. But in day-to-day life, wouldn't it be great if you could kind of manipulate your thought process to be more economic and to put pictures in people's heads? It's another thing that I really appreciate about broadcasters like Kyle Sandlands or Hamish Blake. I think they're very good at that. Yeah, They're very good at saying, this is what I'm thinking. Without a doubt, there's been many... uh highly particularly you know in particular very emotional conversations i've had with either family members or partners where either myself or the other person we've we've struggled in some way to to get across what we're trying to say Mm. and i think a big part of that is by using more image-based language every powerful communicator i know think their language is really precise do you think that's a learned skill or it comes naturally i think that some people it comes naturally i don't know look i personally i don't know about you do you feel like you're constantly see this is what starts happening and i think this is just a long extension of the last 10 years of my life is i'm constantly thinking how do i convey my message and I'm trying to always imagine what the other person is saying. Um, and I think that what happens as a result of that is all these roadblocks start coming into your head. And are you talking about in the context of comedy and, and YouTube or just in general life? Everything. I think it's a lot easier. I think we have, or where, people have, I'm sorry. Do you have a specific example where you struggled to convey a particular message? All the time. Yeah? What, what's one that maybe comes to mind every time i'm doing a podcast like right now right now as soon as you start thinking about this i think that all these roadblocks come into your head sure but at the same time i've always felt that you sort of need to have those roadblocks to communicate better because there are people that just run their mouth these people on reality tv do really well when they do that right yeah i know plenty of people like that yeah yeah but they're not particularly effective communicators. They kind of just spew words. And none of them really hit. But then you hear someone like Paul Keating or Hamish Blake and every sentence they said jabs through. Hmm. It, it really pierces straight into your mind. Hmm. And it has the intended effect. That's what I, I would love to be you know, up there with the greats. And I think Donald Trump is another good example of that. I think Tony Robbins is another good example. Hmm. These people are extremely effective communicators. And a lot of that does come from body language and the the way they, just the tonality. Sure. But it's also word choice. Right, right. So they're more effective at evoking particular images within the audience as opposed to someone else? Yep. Okay. It's it's a really important skill for everybody. Even if you're a builder, if you want to start your own building business, um, 
if you're able to go to clients and then say, what do you want? Do you want a red brick home? Do you want an Impala home? All that stuff. They're not going to know any of that. But if you just go, do you want that kind of building that looks like, you know, red brick from the 70s? Or do you want that kind of like, you know, modern feel where like some of the bricks are yellow, some of them are like a darker yellow? You, you get more precise quicker and then you're able to communicate better. Um. Mm. And so, yeah, I don't know. I, I'd like to know your thoughts on the subject of, like, what's happening in your head when you're talking. <laughs> <laughs> well, I like I said, I, I spoke about what I at least think is happening in my mind when I come up with comedy and when I came up with that particular comedy bit. But when you're speaking to me now, what's happening? Well, it's a combination of processing what you're saying. Mm-hmm. Right now, when you're saying things like that, yeah, some images come to mind. So when you were talking about the brick, I'm just thinking about what, back then when you were saying, describing the bricks as the builder, I was thinking I, images of those particular houses were coming to my mind. And that's another element that I think both of us exploit really well and not a lot of other comedians do it. And I think that it is to their detriment. Mm. I think that both of us put on character voices all the time. And yeah. it helps. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's something I was going to touch on that. It is very effective because it's satirical the way we're presenting these characters. We're not just presenting the character. We're presenting a particular viewpoint or a particular culture through that character. Yep. And that's what I've all, I've always said that even... I go back to one of the first characters I ever did, which was the Cog Dog. So if you don't know, the Cog Dog is a wannabe gangster rapper from Cogra, which is a very middle, maybe lower middle class suburb in Sydney. Mm. And... All I was trying to do with that character is satirize the idea, the the sort of the the, the culture that puts um, gang activity and lawlessness as a high pursuit. So, particular, there are a lot of second generation, yeah, Indians, but also just anyone who isn't white that try to live vicariously through a lot of these rappers. And I just found it, I found it lame. I found it annoying, and so I created this character that people were meant to laugh at and they were meant to laugh at the views that he's espousing. So he's like, yeah, man, I'm from Kogra, bro. Like, it's just so hard around these streets, yeah. bro. Yeah. So the character, character in itself is funny. Yes, to. it's they a very funny character. Like but the subtext of that is this, this culture and the things that this character values are being mocked. Mm. That's, that's like, that definitely comes across and it's also a character that I think can't think of any other examples maybe there is some maybe the fat pizza guys did something like that but it's, it's definitely an aspect of society that no one it's not common to touch on that but as soon as you say that character people in your experience come to mind yeah and it's it's not re- like yeah okay language choice might be important to some degree with that but it's actually a lot about the tonality and just the tonality puts that image in your head sure so that's an aspect of communication that so, honestly I just don't see any other comedians. If, if you're going to be a good comedian or if you're just going to be an effective communicator, I think that you have to be able to employ that. Uh, you're going to have to be able to employ that to some degree. There's counterexamples of it, I guess. Like Husey is just a nonstop character. It's but always... what's he trying to get? Is he trying to communicate any anything as the character, no, he's just trying to communicate the jokes in themselves. 
Hmm? So we're trying to keep it when we when we portray the characters, we might have jokes littered throughout the portrayal of that character, but mm. there's something more to the character that we're trying to say something with the very with with the very portrayal of that character in itself. Mm. Mm. Husey, no. What he's trying Exa- to- well, yeah, that's what I'm saying. He's not No, but his non-stop constant character is amusing and I think I, I, I thought about this a while back it was years ago but I, the things that came to mind is that he's kind of half gay half a junkie and it's half just gay. certain don't you think he's got a very lavender lisp there's something a little bit metrosexual slash homosexual about Husey and I think that he's cottoned on to the fact and that there's certain really, characters you don't think I don't get that from what do you no, get I just get Highly exaggerated Aussie larrikin. Highly exaggerated Just Aussie larrikin. Always pissed off. <laughs> <laughs> it works. It definitely the works. Works. Yeah. I, uh, but what about Carl? There's Sandler? something eccentric, maybe, in his character. But I wouldn't. I. I don't immediately make the link to metrosexuality or, or it being gay. And I think this is something else that I hear about him as well, though, that he is not that person when you speak to him. I've had very brief conversations with him, and no, he's not. So what's he like normally? I, I can't say. I've only had very brief encounters with him, but he's definitely not as exuberant as he is on stage. He's not putting on that voice? No. No. So it is a character that there he's is, embodying. There is a slight, there's a sort of Aussie lower class twang to when he speaks, but it's nothing like what he does on stage. So would you just say it's exaggerated or do you think it's a completely different person? If I were to guess, I would say exaggerated. Uh-huh. Or it's sort of an element of his personality that he amplifies on stage, which I think a lot of comedians do. Mm-hmm. So I... if you look at Chris Rock, if you, if you listen to him in interviews, entirely different to his stage presence. Right. So he's got absolutely none of that you know, black exuberance and high energy enthusiasm that he does on stage. He's very, he's quite mellow. He's actually, he comes across quite shy sometimes in interviews and almost, I wouldn't say anxious, but very softly spoken. Right. Nothing like what he is on stage. And on stage is complete opposite. I think that this is what's happening in these situations. They are picking characters that are sort of naturally funny, like the lib voice. Yeah. The lib voice is funny. There's yeah. no way getting around that. Some cultures have a funny voice. Black people <laughs> have a funny voice. So I think that that's what's happening when uh, well, we Chris just, Rock is coming on. Just to get back onto something that you did, we discussed this in the podcast we did with Isaac, which is when we, often when we put on that, whether you want to call it the wog or the lebo voice, again, what we're doing is we're not making fun of just your day-to-day average Lebanese or wog person in Western Sydney. What are we saying when when we are performing that voice? We're often saying something that we particularly disagree with. Mm. Mm. So an example is like, oh, you know, oh, bro, you got to go to the gym every day, man. That's because I think that mentality, even though I do go to the gym every day now, but <laughs> but sort of valuing that above all else. You bodied you. Yeah, I know, right? I've become that. <laughs> well, but just... So like, oh, bro, like, it's all about the car that you drive, man. Like, that's a perfect example. Mm, mm. 
yeah, there might be some link between there's, there's a higher incidence of people who have that accent who might have that particular view, but we're not making fun of those people. We're making fun of that view that mm. the idea that, yeah, your, your value as a person is linked to your car. Mm. Mm. And hence we're putting on a funny voice to mock that view. Mm. That's how I see it. But it is... And I think we're very similar in that yeah. with the content we do online. But it is relatable to that accent. That's why you choose that accent. Yes, yeah. But it's not. that's not the only thing. No, it's not the only thing. But the, the thing that's very useful about voices is that not only does it put the idea that you've got to go to the gym in your head, it also puts in uh, the exactly what you're talking about, like the attitude of that person. Yes. All of that instantly goes into your head. Yes. It's another cheat sheet. It's another just putting up memes on screen for people to laugh at. Yeah, yeah, and it's very effective. Yeah. I mean, even if you look at the, the first videos that I ever did that went really big, Australian Two Minutes... I mean, any time I'd employ the bogan, the really fucking, yeah, that, that, yeah, that sort of a bogan voice, I'm doing it to make fun of the views that are espoused by that particular character. Mm. And it, yeah. And it works, because you're right, it, it does add that element of visual stimulus. So that's, I, I still think that it comes down to that. It's about putting emotions into people. And this is something that you just see in day-to-day life, is just people that make you feel good get far. But so that that's mm. definitely a really important aspect, and it's also about images. So I think that that might be communication in a nutshell. The person that is able to convey the best image and the best emotion of what they're trying to convey. So it's also about not being incongruent then. And that's something that's very obvious when you put on characters as well. You're not, you're not reticent to put on those characters. Hmm. There's no reluctance in your body. You don't see you being scared of doing that. But I think that as soon as you feel a little bit of fear or you see that in someone's eyes, that they're a bit scared to put on the character, hmm. it becomes very cringy. You have to kind of yeah. embrace it entirely. Not in not only that you, you you have to in many well in many situations exaggerate particular faults of the character. That's where really good character acting comes from. What do you mean exaggerate faults? Well, if you look, think about Peter Sellers, for example, when he did the Pink Panther movies, he was such a klutz. It was almost it wasn't even real the extent of his clumsiness, mm. but that was what made it really funny. Mm, He's mm. exaggerating that mm. to the nth degree. Mm. Yeah. It's the same as, uh, you know, a political cartoonist. They'll exaggerate particular flaws of a, of a person when they illustrate them. The, yeah, if they've got a big nose, they'll make it huge. Exactly. Yeah. It's that kind of thing, but mm. it's, it's the, it's the acting equivalent. It's not the illus- It's not just illustration. Mm. Yeah, so there's like some play in it. So I think a fu- funnier impersonations are not accurate impersonations. Because I know some brilliant... I'm not the best impersonator out there at all. But I am I could say that I'm a lot funnier than a lot of the people who are really good impersonators. Because if you just impersonate someone to very accurately, it's impressive and it can be very funny. But what is funnier 
is exaggerating the faults in someone who people already think is funny. I agree. You're right. It's a different vibe. Yeah, if you're just doing it accurately, the, the it, you're kind of just sitting there in kind of a, a respectful awe. Yeah. So if, you know, we've both done impersonations of Jordan Peterson, but the one I did, I amplified the high voice to such a ridiculous degree because that was what I was, that's my intention was that that was the humorous element. Mm. Whereas if I just accurately depicted him, there's no, there's no humor there. Yeah. There can be, but I think it's, 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 there's much more potential for humor when, when certain traits are amplified. But it's also, when you go to Jordan Peterson as well, it's also about exaggerating his thought pattern. Yeah. Because his thought pattern already is very dramatic. Yeah. Which works for him in that, again, you're paying attention to him. And so it's easy to make him seem even more doomsday-ish than he normally is. So it is just Mm. exaggerating uh, not just his voice, but his personality and his ideas. Yeah. So all of that is in the mix, definitely. But that's that's just yeah. The, look, that that's just one subsection of communication. Because when you're talking about someone like Hamish Blake, who never does any of that, really, he does he does no character impersonation. He doesn't put on voices. It's all image. It's all I, vibe. Yeah, I mean, I I'm not. I haven't listened to a lot of Hamish and Andy, but from when I have, they're very entertaining. I haven't I haven't really uh you know spent some time breaking down why it's effective but well yeah that's the thing that I think is extremely impressive is somebody who's just able to talk off the top of their head boom 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 there's all the images yeah. out I don't know how to get to that point and I think that that is something that is just inherently born but I would really like to know how you get better at that it reminds me a lot, there was, this, there was this great book called How to Be Interesting that Edward Dubono wrote. And he Did was he also, also write The Seven Habits of... No, that's Stephen, Stephen Covey. Oh, okay. He wrote Seven Thinking Hats. Okay. Um, he does a lot of this... He writes a lot in this field, kind of uh, hmm, how best to communicate, I suppose. But he was saying that... the. Interesting conversationalists always talk about possibilities, whereas I, I think that this is a really true point. If you're constantly talking about facts... It's not interesting. It's so boring. Well, the, going back to, you know, you mentioned Donald Trump. There have been videos that break down why he was so effective in the Republican field. And that's because a lot of the other uh, candidates were just... They would just talk about very bland economic facts, and they were very, you know, they were very accurate, and they would they'd be very truthful when they said it. But it didn't. It it, did, it just didn't inspire people, mm. and it was hardly a way to energize a, a base or energize a, a following. Well, actually, let's let's talk about Trump for a second. Why do you think he's so persuasive? Why do you think he's he's a very entertaining man? He is. He is. It's... I just recently there was a little video on Twitter where uh, a French reporter <laughs> he uh, she asked him she's like, uh, what did she say? 
Um, in France, the, the unemployment rate is a lot lower than uh, America. What do you think? That, uh, sorry, the unemployment rate is a lot higher than America. What do you think that is? And he's like, well, maybe that's because we've got a better president. And he just walked away. <laughs> I mean, that is a boss move. <laughs> See, this, this again comes down to the point, though, that I think that a lot of Donald Trump's humor comes from the fact that as soon as you say that, you just think, that's Trump. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's like he's a character. Uh, you got to admire some aspects of him because he's he's managed to just completely throw away any expectations of decorum when it comes to particularly American politicians. And as you say, people just say they just shrug their shoulders. That's Trump. That's what he does <laughs> because he always just doubled down on the fact this is me. This is who I am. Never apologized. He never changed. Who he, he was very authentic. He is being his authentic self. He is. And in a weird way, people do, whether they disagree with it, they respect it. So that's another thing that I always think is a, a really important tool is how do you be authentic? Because that's something that I think I've really permanently damaged myself. I, I, I pulled out. I think I talked about it before, which is spiritual artalishish, which is this idea that you sit there and you write, what do you know for a fact? Oh, yeah. And look, I didn't go the full way, and I don't think that I can, because after a while it just scares you too much. Yeah, I've been thinking, ever since you mentioned that, whatever podcast it was, I've been thinking about that a lot as well, and it is a very, very confronting idea. Yeah. And I think it actually makes you less authentic and less certain about who you are because you start slowly coming to the conclusion that you're just an imprint. Yeah, but then how do you define authenticity because then aren't you still being authentic? If you're unsure of yourself, that is your authentic. Yeah, so it's like, well, I guess then what's happening is Trump is sort of, he's a magic act. And I think it's the same thing with Husey. I think it's the same thing with Kyle Sanderlands. They've kind of just picked a character and pushed it. Yeah. There's a lot of certainty behind them. There's never any glint of, I don't know what I'm saying. There's always just, I'm oh, saying yeah. this now. Yeah, that's true. And so, yeah, I look, I would really, I think that that's definitely a huge part of communication is authenticity slash certainty. It's almost, Trump is like a, someone who's learnt a lot of pickup, but for politics. Yeah. In that he's learnt all these really effective tools to persuade people, but whether or not he genuinely is that overconfident, uh, extremely uh, effective leader, we don't know. And most likely he's not, but he's just so good at persuading people that he is. Mm. In the same way, the guy who's just read that much pickup can persuade a woman that he is this really confident, successful amazing man that's what i always whether think. he actually is is irrelevant no and i always had the same thought when i looked at trump he... it's a it's, psychological it's marvel really it's just how did someone become like that uh, yeah it's something that you should probably ponder a lot in your life because look at it that is a man who has no political leadership skills at all. Like, he, he started with nothing. He's yeah. He is not a politician. He's got no governing experience whatsoever, but he was able to convince a nation that he should be governing at the highest level of office with no experience. 
granted, I think a large component of that was also the fact that the populace had felt as though they'd been let down by people who had that experience. Therefore, they were willing to roll the dice on someone who didn't have that experience. Mm. So they say, oh, we've been so let down by these career politicians. We want someone who is out of that circle. But do you think that it's definitely the, the career politicians or do you think that it's when you are a career politician, you become extremely guarded with everything you say? I think a lot of the reason why no one likes Hillary Clinton is you can see her calculating every word she says. And so every word becomes meaningless. Yeah, every word is this feeling of you're hiding something. That's definitely an element. And the way a lot of the smear attacks uh, work now you have a history in politics there's something that your opponent will find to attack you on Mm. no but see this is the whole thing there's so many things that you can attack trump on the fact that he's got so many failed business ventures yeah he's hugely in debt um ever since he's been in office like just unbelievable levels of corruption like third world dictatorship level corruption many of his promises hasn't stuck to many of his promises uh you know, all of these people that used to deal with him in business coming out and saying, this man is not trustworthy. He says something and then he does something else. They came up with all of these attacks. They don't stick. And look, I'm someone who follows politics. I know these things. He gives people the feeling of success and, and trust because he's so confident with the way he conducts himself that people have, have no choice but to say, well, he must be, he must be doing a good job. Yeah. So I guess at the end of the day, actually, the most important thing is feeling. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we're very irrational and emotional creatures at the core. So maybe, and I don't know, like, okay, so what's your process when you go on stage as a comedian then? Are you thinking, when you go on stage, what are you thinking the few moments before that? Oh, Hmm. I've never really analysed that, to be honest. It's yeah. probably... I try to calm myself down. I Lately, I've actually tried to have a moment of gratitude before every show. So I've tried, even if it's a really small show or it's a show that I might not want to be there, I sort of say, you know, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad that I'm doing something I love because you can so easily become... It's so easily just become a normal nine-to-five job that you detest like every other person. Hmm. But I really am in a very privileged position, so I try to remind myself of that. Um, I'm often going through the first few jokes in my set list. There's no one particular uh, thought or process I abide by strictly before every show. So you, so it sounds like you're trying to get into a mood. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I'll also try to energise myself. That's a big part of it. Hmm jump around a little bit, mm, mm. psych myself up. Mm. Have that. you noticed that other comedians do that, or is that just you? Some do, some don't. Well, what are the other ones that don't? Can you tell oh. the difference between those that do and those that don't? No, I don't think there's really much of a correlation between a, a particular uh, behaviour on stage with comedians that conduct themselves in a certain way before they go on stage. I, uh, well, I haven't, it's not something I've really focused on i know when i performed at the Enmore this year there were a few big uh british comedians that were also sharing the same dressing room area that i was and they were just surprisingly relaxed they were 
having really casual banter with amongst themselves before the show. That could be the fact that they've done so many big shows, so many big theater shows in the UK that this is just another gig for them. Whereas for me, it was the third time I'm doing the MOR theater. I was quite nervous. I was really hoping that it was going to be a great show. So what did you do before the MOR show then? Uh, that particular show, I just went into the dressing room and I just got in, into my own space and I was listening to some music, some calming music to begin with and running over my, my jokes. Um, and again, yeah, also energizing myself, pumping myself up before the show. Yeah, I do the same thing as well. It's, yeah. it's strange that you want to fluctuate between being really relaxed and extremely hyped. I it, don't know why that is. There's actually, now that I think about that, that is, that is a bit strange, isn't it? But I get the same inclination. You want to relax. Well, you want to relax the nerves, but amp up the energy, but not that nervous. Well, a little bit of that nervous energy is fine. I guess it's what's... It's it is idea, a weird thing. It's probably the idea that Samurai's had, which is that a lot of a Samurai's life was meditating. And mostly what their war training was, was to go berserk for five minutes. Basically, because they wanted the psychological edge on their opponent. And they realized that in warfare, it's extremely messy. And somebody who's of way lower status than you could just stab you in the heart with a spear and that's the end. What gives you a better chance of survival is giving off the visage that I'm a ferocious animal, don't come near me. And then you run up to someone mm. and then you're inhabiting that space. And so they go, ah, and they hesitate for a second. You go, ah, straight in the heart. <laughs> I think. Yeah, and that momentary hesitation would be the difference between life and death, wouldn't it? Yep. In that extremely high stakes environment. So I think that maybe that's what's happening. Yeah. And look, I, I kind of. I think that's what's happening in my mind as well when I go onto stage. I'm, I, I want to be relaxed enough to gauge what the audience is thinking and feeling so I'm not in my head and my thoughts aren't running really fast. Yeah. Uh, but I also, and also I understand that if you're too high energy for too long, it becomes annoying and grating. But you yeah, want to be able yeah. to go there. Yeah. There are also other factors, uh, the audience themselves, you need to match. You need to. I think you need to not match their energy, but be just a little bit higher than them. Mm, I agree. Because if if there's a mismatch of energy there, I've seen really high energy comedians perform to a chill audience, small low energy audience, and it's, just, it's very really cringy. cringy. Mm. No, that's well, that's a fact. Confidence is probably the the key factor in not just com comedy, but all the people we've spoken about. Not just confidence, just this. In some cases, almost an over... Well, in Trump, for, for example, it's just this overcompensatory confidence, isn't it? It's just way over the top. But there's some sense that you get when you watch Donald Trump, and even though in the back of your mind you're thinking, that guy's stupid, and I don't think that Donald Trump is stupid. I think he's, I think he's an idiot savant. I think he's extremely stupid in a lot of ways, but very, very skilled in certain traits that are extremely valuable to have as a politician so yeah. I think he's extremely persuasive i agree with that he's very confident and all of those things are very important especially on the campaign trail but he's very good at getting people on board with his message mm. you feel like going with him when you listen to him yeah and that even when he was doing the apprentice and 
when he was just the businessman. He was known as the rich guy. Mm. That was just his whole brand. Mm. Mm. Rappers would always talk about him in songs. Yeah. Like, I want to be like Donald Trump. And that was just. And he wasn't even the richest no, man yeah. by a mile. Yeah, it's all. But the image was there. Yeah. 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 Really, really interesting. Because there's no one that even comes close to. Do you know, is there anyone that's even has a slight likeness to Donald Trump? As a politician or anyone? Just anyone. The closest I get are the people who sometimes I talk to who often they're not successful at all, but they give off this vibe that they're extremely successful. They're often people who have all these ideas going on. They say, yeah, I'm going to start this business. I've got this great idea doing this and doing that, doing that. And rationally, if I thought about that idea that they're trying to convince me is a good idea, I would think that's a terrible idea. But the way they're speaking about it, the passion that they're invoking is so effective that I start to get on board. And I have come across those people. So you think they're the most effective communicators you know? I don't know if they're the most effective, but they are very effective. Well, okay. In your mind, who is the most effective communicator? That I, that's something I'd have to think about. Well, I, just rattle some names off. Not the most then. Just where are we talking? Well, Surely Donald Trump's yes, up there. He's D- definitely Donald Trump is a very effective communicator. And I that, I think that we've boiled down to is just certainty. I think he believes in himself. Yeah, where it almost becomes, it, it, even if it's objectively false, whatever he's trying to say, it becomes true because he's that certain about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know who I, you that know who can be like, But that can also be like many other ideals. I mean, even if you think about religion, I did this course a couple of weeks ago. I was talking to a lot of people who are strong and strict Christians and when the question came up, like, how do you know this is true? And they just said, because I've, I've just felt it. I, it. It transformed me. It changed my life. So the effects were very true. And they were that convincing when they were talking about it. That well, you thought, maybe there is a God. No, I didn't go to that extent, but I could see that there's a, there's a real value in just believing. So even if it's, again, like scientifically or objectively false, if you believe it, to that extent, to the to the utmost extreme, to the nth degree possible as a human being, the emotion of it becomes true. Okay. If that so makes sense. Yeah, right, 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 right. So but when when they were speaking that you felt the emotion that they felt. Yes. So when Trump keeps saying we're winning, we're winning, we're winning, we're winning if you look at certain statistics, no, America might not necessarily be winning. What does he even define as winning? <laughs> But I just, when he says it, I'm just like, this guy's, yeah, we're winning. <laughs> Don't you think? And it's the same thing when I'm talking to when really, really like passionate Christians or just not even Christians, any, any, anyone who's just passionate about something. I feel, I feel the emotion of it. And that's half the battle. Whether or not I actually objectively agree with it, I, I definitely feel the emotion of it. Mm. That's got to be the pre. That's uh, look. I know that we're kind of just dancing around the same subject here, but this is actually. I'm really no, but I'm really glad we are because it's actually clarifying a lot in my mind. It's a very so in a weird way. If you if 
if a very effective communicator came up to you and just said something that's just categorically false, I don't know, one plus one equals three. Jordan, I'm telling you, one plus one equals three. So many people have told yeah, there'd be a way there'd be a way to convince you. Surely. Emotionally convince you. Like you would still know in your head, no, one plus one equals two, but you'd feel as though one plus one equals three because they were that the the passion that they can invoke within you is so effective mm. that the emotional response almost trumps the rational response. Well, you always hear this insult hurled at Donald Trump, and I think that it is the most accurate, which is that he's a con man. And con man, it has a different meaning now. Originally, what a con man meant because. Con men came up with the name con men for themselves. It wasn't derogatory to begin with. Yeah. It meant confidence man. It was all that, about... That's him. That that's is, him. That is him. That's him. When I think about people that I relate most to Donald Trump, I think about pimps. You know when <laughs> pimps just have this flow about themselves? and. Sure. <laughs> this so you, air of certainty. So you know a lot of pimps, do you? No, nah, but I've I, I, look. I, I used to be really into Snoop Dogg, right. and every one of his friends pimps, yeah. or they did back in the nineties at yeah, least. Yeah, now he's probably he's friends with Lady Gaga and shit. A pimp. <laughs> I think he was. That, he's another perfect example of someone who just has what can only be perceived as unshakable confidence. He's so self-assured. Like you just know what Snoop Dogg is Snoop Dogg. Yeah. I think it is honestly transferable to comedy. So when you're on stage and you just have this... It was kind of like we were talking about before, but this, this flow sort of takes over. And... Sure. You know, your ad-libbing is just on point. Everything you say is funny oh, at that yeah, point. Yeah, or you get in the zone. if something dies, you just like you don't even care. You just move on. Something hits after that. Yeah, right. So people aren't connecting emotionally with the jokes. They're connecting with you. Because that's the perfect. If they're not, if a joke dies, it means they're clearly not always necessarily connecting with the jokes themselves. But they're just connecting with the person who is on stage. In the same way, if a politician says ten things and six of them are false, uh, six of them are true, four of them are false, doesn't matter because people are connecting with the person. Right. Okay. And even if you, well, if you look at someone like, I mean, Australian politicians do not have the, they're nothing like the American ones. But Scott Morrison has, whether it's fake or not, it, it clearly is at least elements of it are fake. He does have that sort of ocker edge to him that a lot of the Australian population would connect with emotionally, don't you think? I think that that's when I... Look, when he replaced Malcolm Turnbull, I still thought the Labour Party was going to win, but I thought when he replaced Malcolm Turnbull, I thought that man is more dangerous than Malcolm Turnbull, which is interesting yeah. because Malcolm Turnbull was the best debater in the most primo private school his entire career from primary school to high school to university he was an absolute savage when it came to debating well debating in an intellectual context and debating you know academic ideas would be very different to convincing the a population of people to vote for you right and that's what i think happened when he became prime minister um 
something shifted and he became more Hillary Clinton-like and everything that he said became very guarded. That is not what Scott Morrison gives off. Scott Morrison gives off the vibe of, um, I'm a daggy dad. And also on top footy. of that, I love the footy. He's he always pointing it, doesn't he? Yeah, And yeah. He, he, just at the recent uh, Prime Minister's 13 uh, game against Papua New Guinea, so every year, it's sort of an Australian second side that uh, goes and plays the Papua New Guinea national team. He actually chose, helped choose the team and the first Prime Minister ever to actually do that, I, I think. And he was the water boy on the fi- he he would give them the water and things like that. It's definitely a prerequisite to being an Australian Prime Minister. You have to love a sport. You it's have the only to love way, sport, like Bob yeah. Walt, John Howard, Scott Morrison. You have to be a man of the people, kind of thing. You have but to be I, a man of, but the man of the people in Australia, like it really, look, we're such a backward culture. What is it? Sport. That's it. <laughs> one thing. You know, if you think about France or something Bob Hawke. Oh, neck of beer, Bob. Neck of beer. Yeah, he's one of us. And also on top of that, loved cricket. Loved cricket, neck to beer. Paul Keating, on the other hand, easily the best prime minister we ever had in terms of how savage he was. He was just like, you you know, actually, I was reading something uh, recently about, and it was actually Peter Costello that was saying this. It didn't connect in the the way Bob Hawke did. No, because he was too intellectual. And the thing is that, but like when he goes into parliament, like you can go look at his shredding on uh, on YouTube or whatever, right? It, it honestly puts like Ben Shapiro's wreckage to shame. Like this was a man who knew how to wreck people. When he called John Howard a desiccated, what was it? Coconut, yeah. desiccated coconut, all all the classics. Um, you know, like unrepresentative swill. Um, yeah, yeah, you turkeys couldn't run a donut shop. Like he was, he was mad at those calls, but um, appealing to. But again, even uh, Canberra and the the chambers or whatever—that's an echo chamber in itself. Yes. And the the cross section of the population who become politicians have are not. It's not an accurate sample space of what the average person in Australia is like at all. No. So if you're appealing to them, that's very different to appealing to the general population. And that was a perfect example of Trump v. Hillary. Hillary appealed, well, definitely within her section of the Democratic Party, the corporatists or whatever you want to, I don't know, whatever people call it now. She appealed massively to them and within the DC bubble, whereas Trump didn't appeal to any of them at all, but appealed to the people who were actually voting. Yeah, because she was inhabiting that space for too long. It shaped her. And she really didn't like communicating yeah. with other people. You yeah, never really wow. saw many images of her communicating. In fact, you saw her very rarely on the campaign trail. She didn't campaign much at all. Well, she kind of had this air of being a Marie Antoinette figure. She probably... moved in this bubble. Yeah, because she's been so... Uh, she's existed for so long in the political bubble, she would have thought, oh, if I raise the most money, I'll win. Mm. Mm. I think the, the thing was, though, in that bubble, like I remember Peter Costello talking about it when Paul Keating was walking into the parliamentary chamber, the lower house, everyone would be talking amongst themselves, the back benches, the front benches, the opposition, whatever, they'd all be talking. Paul Keating would enter the room and everyone would go silent. And you could see it. This was what Peter Costello was saying. He was saying that you could see 
the Labour politicians just like smirking to each other and there'd just be this kind of jeery chuckle coming from the government side. And on the opposition side, everyone was trying to avoid eye contact with Paul Keating and they were shrinking away from him when he entered the room wow, and sat it, down. Was it that intense? He had that gravitas. Who would avoid so, eye contact with him. Yeah. He was he was extremely dominant figure within that circle. Oh, and like there was this thing of when he spoke, this is what Peter Costello was saying. He was saying that everybody else when they're just, you know, day-to-day jabs of being in Parliament. None of it really cut through. But when Paul Keating made fun of you or pointed you out or, you know, you know, ob- observed one of your hypocrisies or whatever, he'd say that that stung. Yeah. That, actually, that actually hurt you. And so it had this knock-on effect in that it kind of made... He kind of cucked the opposition. So when they were talking in front of a camera, they weren't as certain about what they thought because they just... Think about Paul Keating just being like, you're useless, aren't you? You're just not worth shit kind of thing. And then they're just like, oh, you know, <laughs> that that was the kind of attitude that he yeah, was giving off. Yeah. So I think that there's like, there's then definitely again, things to, to appreciate in that. That's an, that's effective communication within the parliament. Mm. But he won that one. He won against uh, the GST guy. Didn't he won he? against Hewson. But yeah. the thing was, Hewson was another one of those guys. Like John Howard, definitely understood the mood of Australia better than Paul Keating and John Hewson. Both Paul Keating and John Hewson were intellectuals, mm. and John Hewson just didn't have the political experience that Paul Keating had. Um, but they were both very heady men. And so this is actually another thing that I think, and I think it's kind of the same with you though. Like I think, look. Just by the very nature of being a comedian, we have to appeal to a certain base. Oh, yeah. You have to do that. But I see with you the same thing that happens with me, which is I think that we're both kind of heady dudes. We don't really live in our bodies. But I think that what we've come to here today is that, Mm. like, if you want to be a good communicator, you kind of have to live in your heart. Like, you, you kind of have to live down here, I guess. And I think that's what always happens when I'm on stage. Definitely, when I bomb, start retreating into my head my head hurts your head hurts i think that's what happens like there's just too many thoughts just kind of frazzling the same space yeah yeah i can see that well i can see that as in i can see that with me as well so maybe it's the same Mm. thing with trump it's that he doesn't even use the right word a lot of the time and people say that that's deliberate no that can't be deliberate if you're speaking (laughs) for that long you're just saying wrong words and just stumbling through, but he just gives off this aura of certainty and that cuts through. Now, I think that on top of that, you should definitely be honing the skill of making your thoughts more economic and kind of painting a picture for the audience. That's definitely part of it, but God, that feeling of certainty is powerful. Do you change your... Well, whether or not you change your jokes and your content, but do you change your demeanour when you perform to different demographics? So, I, well, I suppose people like us, we generally just perform to our audience. But I know if I'm performing to a crowd of white baby boomers in country Australia, I change my... I do change And my I've demeanor. noticed that. I've noticed you do that as well. And I question that sometimes, I think, is that... Is that me being inauthentic? Or are you reading the room? Yeah. Or is it a bit of both? Because it does, it it makes a huge difference. Yeah. It makes a huge difference. Even just adding a slight twang to the way you speak. If I just speak like this Mm. for that audience, Mm. immediately a sense of connection is stronger than what it would have otherwise been if I, well, if I speak like this. Mm. Mm. 
But I also think that your demeanor is mm. a little more polite. I think that that is actually yeah. something that is very good about how malleable you are on stage, actually. Now that I think about it, when I've seen you perform to that kind of an audience, um, what's the word? You're, you're less assuming. When you're in front of your own audience, there's a... There, there, well, I mean, it's just it would have to be that way, wouldn't it? There, there is an air of confidence. And again, I'm just relating this to the way politicians conduct themselves and... There was footage, I remember a couple of months ago of uh, oh, everyone's favourite uh, everyone's favourite communist, <laughs> AOC. <laughs> um, <laughs> she, uh, she was speaking to a black crowd and she started speaking like this. Mm. She, she genuinely changed her entire accent. Really? Yeah, and she was like clapping and things like that, putting on all these characteristics uh, to appe- appease that particular crowd. Mm. And I was very critical of it when I saw it on Twitter, but then I thought, well, no, I do the same kind of thing with comedy. <laughs> <laughs> but don't you think then maybe it's just more powerful to be yourself because that's honestly, th- that is something that, again, people like about Bernie Sanders. Everyone was saying that he's a prattling old curmudgeon Jew. Yeah, but, but he is that curmudgeon Jew everywhere. Yeah, you, you know that you're getting his authentic self. But I find I just do this now. It's something I've, again, I've thought about whether is this an element of my insecurity that I constantly need to please people. But I do this in day-to-day life. When I'm talking to, you know, if I go to the bar opposite my apartment and I'm talking to some of the guys there that just watch footy, I'll, sometimes I'll put on a bit more of an accent like this. More woggish? Yeah, slightly more woggish, yeah. It right. just, it happens naturally. I don't do it consciously. Yeah. So what I don't know what that is. I've I've tried I've spent time, you know, psychoanalyzing it to a certain degree. But I don't know. I wouldn't I wouldn't be quick to assume it's necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, this is what I'm wondering. I like, don't know if there's some sort of subconscious need for me mm-hmm. to to be accepted or some <laughs> some Freudian explanation as to why I do it. Well, probably. Yeah, I probably well, do Freudian the same thing. But like, yeah, I, I, yeah, but it's when it. How do you explain when Australians go overseas? They amp up their Aussie uh, characteristics more often than not. Yeah, but if they stay there long enough, well, not even that long. Usually, like even if you go to England for six weeks, people come back with an English accent. You know what I think it is? Yeah, I think it might be the fact that how confident are you in yourself? Because I definitely do that. I say mate so much when I'm overseas. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't say mate ever unless I'm in Thailand. It doesn't make sense. It's I, interesting, I, isn't it? Well, it is interesting. Yeah. It's just, what's the inclination there? Do you think when you are a minority, you're more inclined to to... Uh, exude certain characteristics more uh, more powerfully in a way? Do you think that's why certain certain ethnic groups are so uh, over the top with their characteristics sometimes? You know what? I, yeah, it might be. And I think it might come from an apologetic space. I think when I'm saying it overseas... 
it's because I'm kind of just saying to them, look, I don't know the culture here at all. Sure. You know, I'm a fob. Yeah, so you want to just make that clear. I want to make that clear to people that I have no idea what your customs are. I'm probably making an ass. And I think that it started to happen a lot when I lived in Korea because you'd start noticing... They're extremely polite people, but after a while you realise because they're a much more layered society than... Australia, there's fuck all layers here, but, you know, especially in Japanese and Korean societies, you know, they they have different languages for speaking to different people. They're very polite, layered people. But after a while you start realising that they're sitting there thinking, you're an uncultured ass. (laughs) <laughs> and I think that after a while, you kind of just play into it and you're just like, so yeah, I am an uncultured yeah. ass. Sorry. Yeah, I own it. <laughs> yeah. I think that is what ha- is happening in that situation. And yeah, I, look, I think that there's something defensive about that. And that's probably why when minorities come here, they kind of lean further into it. Wow. Now, so many instances are popping up in my mind of times I've done something similar. I know when I perform to comedians who aren't internet comedians, if I'm performing in a comedy room, I'll I'll even occasionally change my set to jokes that I know might not get as strong a laugh from the audience, but are, are, are cleverer or more sort of pu- comedically purist jokes versus when I'm performing with internet comedians or just to a general audience. Okay. Why? What are you? Tr- well, what yeah, are you? What are you doing it there? Probably comes down to the fact that I've, uh, it's it's a lot less than what it was. You know, five years ago, I was really obsessed about pleasing those people. That's probably what it comes down to: acceptance so it's, it's of the herd. It's about pleasing them. It's acceptance of the herd. Yeah. So, someone like Donald Trump. There is definitely an air of being unapologetic. I think, yeah, because the acceptance of the herd mentality is so powerful in humans that when you talk to people who on Twitter, for example, are offended at a particular joke or say, I don't like that person, then when you get them face-to-face or in a group of people that have views contrary to them, they either completely change their views or they're at the very least not as... Uh, Verbal. Yes. Yeah, <laughs> not as forthright with what they believe in. And that's where that's the whole so the, the culture today is so fragmented because of the potential of echo chambers on the internet. Whereas before that, the only way you could discuss was with day-to-day, with, with, with just people in your actual day-to-day life. So you couldn't afford to be as passionate about a, a, a niche view or a niche ideology because then that wouldn't fulfill your basic need to be accepted by the herd. Mm. Yeah. Well, obviously it kind of just created... Yeah, what's happening now, I guess, is just these uh, hyped demographics like hyper concentrated demographics that kind of just feed off of each other and egg each other on whereas before there was kind of just this culture that existed and you had to fit into it yeah yeah so different now whereas well it's yeah but there's still something at play there which is acceptance in the herd which is why in twitter in the twitter sphere 
the ideas start becoming dumber and dumber if you don't look into other perspectives and you just narrow in on that perspective because you start believing the assumptions that they make and it becomes more and more mm. purist and with those purist ideas a lot of the subtleties and nuances just leave and so it becomes so stupid true. yeah you end up appealing to the extremes in yeah. every yeah i know i was thinking someone who was doing an interview and they were part of the libertarian party or something like that and every apparently every election cycle when the libertarian party has their conference there are a set there's a certain sector of the constituents who want to appeal to the masses but then there's just a, a, a probably a larger section that say it should not be a law to wear seat belts, and then they just go on and on about that <laughs> because they're like if you're a purist libertarian it 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 cannot be regulated to wear seat belts. And yeah, from an outside perspective, you think, hey, you guys, it, it's so dumb. I know. <laughs> You're not going to... I mean, I, I can see that's the ideology. You want to stay pure to it. But in the particularly in the 2016 election when the uh, minor parties had such a such a advantage in trying to gain at least go up to 5 6 7% type thing, they just didn't do... They, they missed a really valuable opportunity because they yeah. were just trying to be extreme purists. Yeah, yeah. It is really hard talking to someone like that as well because it's just... It's, you know what? Jordan Peterson has a really good phrase for that. It's like demon. Uh, you, you become possessed by the demon of ideology. Yeah. As soon as he said that, I've never been able to look at internet arguments the same way ever again because the person that you're arguing with, it becomes very obvious very quickly. And my life is just arguing. But it becomes very obvious very quickly if there's any point at all talking to someone because they they so true yeah there's just they're not speaking to you they're not listening to you they're not there's no point there's no point there's they're, literally no point unless okay the if there's an audience to that debate or argument there is a point because what you want to do yeah. is try to sway either their followers or the Sit people on, the, fences, or on yeah. the fence and sometimes just being the nicer person in the debate will do that. Mm. Mm. I've seen that, uh, you know, you see that uh, some of those ABC Big Ideas, uh, Festival of Big Ideas, whatever it was, I can't remember, but I was seeing some debates about that. And literally the people who were just had a better temperament and seemed like nicer people won people over. Yeah. It is a lot about demeanour, isn't it? Mm. I think this is really cool, man. Like, I'm really glad um, I talked to you about this because I think that that's... That's, uh, like, at the end of the day, look. It was a really interesting discussion, man. I, I liked it. I'm glad you brought up that topic. Man, I, I really think it's valuable. It's one of the ones now, again, I'm just going to continually think about this yeah. <laughs> every time I'm speaking to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> but that's, that's what's so uh, elusive about this subject, because as soon as you start thinking about that, um, you, you've completely destroyed the flow. Yeah, wow. Because I think that that's sword, it's a it? double-edged sword, and that's I think that that's oh, just man. been the last ten years of my life is just constantly thinking about this and fucking up a lot of conversations as a result of it. But I think that yeah, look, but yeah, okay. So th there's the arg there's the argument there that someone like a Trump or some very confident people in social settings uh, have that uh, you know the well they're so likable because they're just embodying themselves and they're not overthinking everything but do you think someone like tony robbins for example 
he's probably done both. He's thought about the way people communicate and he's thought about communication skills. And then he's found a way to still be thinking about it maybe, you know, to, to switch from being in the moment versus thinking about it. Mm. Do you think people can do that? Well, that's Tony Robbins' entire life, is entering people's worlds, trying to find keywords that they use, then thinking about those words uh, and then using them to them so that he is more relatable to them. Because he, in a lot of ways, neuro-linguistic programming, it has the word linguistic in it. Yeah. He understands this at a core level. And he's been doing it for 30 years, so it's automatic to him. Just like it's automatic to you when you think about love and then insanity just that. naturally instances. Don't you yeah. think? Like it, it naturally intersplices because you've trained your brain to do that. He has conditioned his brain to relate to people really well. So that just comes off naturally to him. Mm. But it is also a thing of you can definitely see it. When Tony Robbins is talking about business, he uses a lot of precise, cut to the chase, a lot of swear words, uses a lot of swear words. He's a lot more masculine in his presentation. But then when he's talking to Oprah's audience, mm. uses a lot of words like love and forgiveness and we've got to care about one another and there's no one that? better than a mum, you know, that kind of stuff. You know? <laughs> Do you think he does that consciously? Or maybe he started off doing it consciously, but then it, it was so drilled into him that now it's natural? Yeah, I think it's so drilled into him that it's natural, but he would consciously think about it beforehand, but yeah. that would all be part of the process. Yeah. And I think that the same thing actually happened with Donald Trump. But in, in both instances, it doesn't matter if he's in front of the business audience or if he's in front of the Oprah audience. He's, he's still just as confident. That masculine edge of winning, winning, winning. Yeah, yeah. It, it's that is the being that is the element of his being. And I think that that's what happened with Donald Trump as well. Donald Trump, when you <laughs> when you first saw, and I I do actually recommend you go back and watch this. When you first saw Donald Trump announcing his presidency, he was extremely confident with what he was saying. And he got cheers from certain things that he said. In fact, he was very clever in this, in that what he, what everyone else, what every other politician looks for when they're trying to relate to, you know, electorates or whatever. Mm. They're looking at polling. They're looking at surveys. They're, they're looking at, uh, you know, just... Um, focus groups what yeah. words they should be using to relate to these people that's Where what do we they're place using. our hand <laughs> that stuff yeah donald trump paid for none of that he just got some of his employees at trump tower sat them in a room and said listen to talk back radio for a week and tell me what they're talking about and that's all they did for 10 hours a day for an entire week and then they reported back to him and they said they're talking about this stuff a lot they're talking about the wall they're talking about immigration problems, all of this stuff. And so he started using that language because he was realizing that this is the base that I have to relate to. Wow. And it's, it's such a better way to do it because, you know, when you ask someone, what do you think about this? They're just going to go, oh, yeah, all, I guess, and, you know, you're, you're asking them all these questions. You're saying, what do you think? What do you think? Yeah. But most people aren't used to thinking what they think. Most people just listen to mainstream media and then the person says, this is what you think, right? Sure, and so their brain sure. just goes into a natural pattern to whatever, uh, you know, bubble they're in, right? Yeah. So he was listening to the people, the thought leaders, and then adopting their beliefs and their ideas. And so he cut to the chase in a lot of ways. He just, like all these 
natural things that all other politicians just don't do because they always just look down on talkback radio and think, oh, you know, that's just, you know, dramatic sensationalist crap. And it is, but that's what people listen to. So he was pushing that stuff. And so when he first started out, he came up on stage and there was a lot of awkward moments. You can go back and watch it where the audience okay. doesn't know if they should be clapping Who is he uh, perform? Was he performing to his supporters or was he performing to a Republican? Uh, it was members? in Trump Tower. Oh, right. Okay. He came down on Trump Tower to <laughs> rock the in the free world. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got sued for using rocking in the free world. And... Um, apparently the audience was paid to be there, which is why there was a lot of awkward pauses because oh, okay. it was Democrat voters. It was New York. Ah, uh, okay. And, but the thing is that what he was looking at is he was looking at those PowerPoints and, and th- this is what happened over time apparently is he just, yeah. And he does it live. He just goes, where should we call it? Should we call it crooked Hillary or lying Hillary? And whatever the more powerful response is like, with Crooked Hillary, he's just like, okay, her name's Crooked Hillary I've got from to, now I've on. got to watch this. That sounds incredible. Yeah. Just really, I know we're sort of getting to the point where we're wrapping this up, but um, say whatever you want about Kanye West. I, I think he actually is priming for a run in 2024 as a Republican. You reckon? Yes, because what he's done in supporting Donald Trump is that the Donald Trump base is so separate and so tribalistic in their mentality that un- you, the only way that you could swing some of those people, particularly like the really fervent Trump supporters, is if you were connected to Trump in some way. He's done mm. that. Mm. And, and then he distanced himself from it a little bit. Now he's coming up with an album. It, it was just announced today. It was called It's Jesus Lives or something, something very Christian to appeal to that uh, very um, evangelical Makes base sense. of the Republican of the Republican Party, which Ted Cruz had and was competitive with Trump mm. in the in the primaries. Mm. So those mm. are the two the, that sort of right wing populist uh, base. You know, the white working class who don't care that much about the. Maybe they do. I don't know. They're not as Christian as say the ones who voted for Cruz. Mm. I I think he's priming for like a run in twenty twenty four as a Republican. You know what? That would make a lot of sense. And on top of that. It is such a good base to go for because the evangelical base is extremely obedient and reliable. Basically, their pastors sure. say, go out and vote, and then you have instantly 10,000 votes in an electorate. It's more than that. Oh, yeah, in an electorate. But, you know, yeah. like, yeah, you get all of those preachers on side, and that's what they do. They get all those preachers together. Yeah. They go to the Republican candidate, and they say, this is the one that we're going to support. And then you get that huge base. That's wow. why Ted Cruz did so well yeah. in the primaries is because he had that evangelical vote sewed up. Um, Donald Trump... I'm picking it. I'm picking it. What is, whatever the date is today, October 2019. Kanye, It'd be amazing if you're right. Kanye 2024. or to, Well, Kanye one day as a Republican. I think you're right, man. And on top of that, look... He can't appeal to the... He's not going to win. In, he, I think he even knows that. He can't... I don't think he has a chance in the Democratic primaries. No, he'd get laughed off the stage. He'd yeah. be like Miriam Worth or whatever her name was. Yeah. Remember that self-help author oh, that William, had a go? Marianne Williamson. Yeah, Miriam Williamson. That's what happens when you try and put in a, a somewhat celebrity into a, um, in, into a Democratic primary. It's not going to work. I think it would depend on the. Well, don't you think so, the the Clintons basically to know have shit. a celebrity appeal? Yeah, but they're, they're 
they're celebrities for being politicians. They know what they're talking about. Yeah. Whereas when it comes to the Republican base, and this is something that's very scary about the Republican base, is that because the Republicans don't represent mainstream America at all, they purely represent fossil fuel interests and banks, essentially, at this point. So they should just, you know, the the 0.01% of society, there's this entire party aimed at servicing them. And so to get votes, they have to go for your evangelicals, your gun nuts, your nativists, all these whack jobs, essentially. That's the Republican base now. Just throw them things of, you know, just a bit of, uh, you know, abortion banning here and some gun rights here and just that kind of stuff. And they'll come out and vote for you, right? That came from, like, the Southern strategy, didn't it? That's where it all started. Yep. Yeah. They started off with that. And so the thing is that really, look, the, the base... The establishment is different. The establishment of the Republican base would have very nuanced grey area arguments, but that is not where their base is anymore. Their base is with the nuts, and so you have to appeal to the nuts. And so if you're someone like Kanye West and you just come out and just be really charismatic and talk about how much you love Jesus, you've got millions of people willing to vote for you instantly. I think he'll do it, man. (laughs) (laughs) And he he would have sympathy with the Trump voters because he came out as a black celebrity... Say what you want about the guy. That is, I would honestly say How that's courageous. As a black celebrity, came out and said, "I support Trump." Yeah, <laughs> that's brave. Everyone walked back from that. In the primaries, there was a few rappers that were supporting Donald Trump because they, that's, again, because yeah, he that, had that pimp attitude about him. So they were just like, "Yay!" But then afterwards, they just kind of, you know, walked back. <laughs> <laughs> and Kanye jumped straight into it. And again, that's what is the genius of Kanye West. He's a genius marketer. Yes. So he could pull it off. He is. He is. All right. Well, we we've spoken at length on this on this topic. It was, man, that was a really. That was probably the. I think that's the best one we've done so far. I really like this subject. I, I really liked it a lot. Yeah. Well, thank you, thank you, Jordan. Yeah, but cheers to you too, <laughs> for someone talking to me about it. <laughs> thank <laughs> you. Thanks to the listeners. <laughs> Subscribe if you haven't already. Yeah, do that.